Well, good morning, church. Welcome, welcome, welcome. I thank God that you're here this morning. And I hope that you've come today, and I hope that when you leave today, that you will have known and come to experience the love of God if you haven't already. There's a God, and he loves you. And he's brought you here this morning because he wants you to hear more from him. And he wants you to know him more. And so I'm glad that you're here. And may the Holy Spirit just work in your lives this morning. Well, I want to begin with a passage of scripture since we're in the Advent season here in the month of December. With the same passage that I opened last week. Because I just it's such a passage that just speaks so deeply to me in Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7. We read this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, Lord, we just look to you this morning. We turn our eyes towards you. We turn our hearts towards you. We turn our minds towards you, Lord. We hunger for you. We want to hear from you. We thank you for giving us your son. Thank you for the child that was born who is Jesus Christ, the King. And I pray, Lord, this morning your Holy Spirit would work within us. So we are here for you, Lord. Speak to us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this sermon today. We're, we're going through a topical series here in the month of December. And I want to take you back in my life just for a moment. When I was a young boy, I had the privilege of living in Mexico for several years. And for the majority of time that we were there, we had no electricity or running water. Now, for those of you who have grown up with the internet and cell phones and video games, this might be hard for you to comprehend. What do you do when none of that was there? Well, when you're a child and it came to being entertained, you had no other option than to use your imagination and become creative. And I know some of you have had this experience yourselves. And so... My brother and I and my sister, we learned how to build small weapons of used spark plugs that would actually fire wooden matchsticks. Yes, yes, indeed. And we, all, we also learned to make little mud bricks, hard mud bricks. And we would use them because we didn't have toy racetracks and stuff. So we would use these to build banks on our little uh, mud highways and to build bridges for our, for our toy cars that we would build out of old plastic bottles. And we would use straight wooden sticks as axles and empty yarn spools or thread spools for wheels. And we would use the caps off of 
pop bottles as rims. And, and you know, the story goes on like that. And so we would, on top of that, we would make our racetrack with our bridges and the barriers. And we'd have our little race cars that we would, that we'd built. But we would also make people. Mud is a great asset when you have nothing else. And so you can, build, you can build a whole nation of people with a simple cookie cutter. And if you get the consistency just right, you can create an entire people in one day. And by day two, they were cured enough that you could actually stand them up in the soft dirt. And now you had your own empire. But all they were was mud. I was proud. These were my people. I had created them. And whoa, whoa, if my brother or sister ever tried to step on any of my people. But all they were was mud, rudimentary pieces of hardened dirt that hardly resembled the silhouette of people. But you know what? When Jesus made people out of the dust of the earth, they were fearfully and wonderfully made. And he breathed life into them. And they became alive and they became living beings. Now, the clods of mud people that we created as kids can't be compared to God creating human beings. And yet, strangely, if you try hard enough, there is a similarity in it in that just as I was preeminent over my mud people, I had abilities that they didn't. God is preeminent over the people that he's created. Now, in our sermon series entitled Behold Him in the month of December, last week we looked at the preeminence of Jesus in regards to his preexistence, his eternality, and that he is the creator of all things. And today I want to continue on that journey and we want to actually look back at the astonishing act of God, the astonishing acts of Jesus, and that as the preeminent being over all, he became like his creation. And so I want to show it to you in two points that I want to highlight this morning. One, the wonder of Christ's coming, and secondly, the amazement of Christ's humility. Point number one, the wonder of Christ's coming. Now, I'm going to build my points, so follow along. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, we read that after God created the heavens, the earth, and everything in it, including man on the sixth day, that God said it was very good. But by the time we get to chapter 3, Adam has sinned. And the onus is put on Adam. Now, when we use the word sin, we're talking about having transgressed against God or an act of offense towards God. And Adam had transgressed God or he had sinned against God by disobeying God. And the effect of that, we read in Romans 5 verse 12, is that sin 
came into the world through one man, that was Adam, and through that, death through sin. Now, this death manifests itself in three ways. First of all, spiritual death, in the sense that we're separated from God. Secondly, it manifests itself in physical death. We experience that today, whether it's through sickness or disease or whatever shape or form death comes in. And thirdly, an eternal death. And that is torment in hell forever for our rebellion against God. And Romans 5.12 continues on and tells us that death spread to all men because all have sinned. You see, every human being has proven that we are just like our father, Adam, because we too have sinned. So think about that for a moment. All of us have sinned. You know what that helps us understand? It helps us to realize this fact, that there are no victims in this room because of our father, Adam. We've all sinned. So we can't even put the blame on him. We would not still be in the Garden of Eden if Adam hadn't sinned because we've all sinned. So we can't just blame him. The fault lies on us all. We are all guilty. Furthermore, our own sinful depravity causes us actually to wander away from God instead of towards him. Romans 3, 10 and 12 tell us, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Mark those words, nobody is righteous. No one understands, no one seeks for God. That's the truth right there. He goes on in verse 12, for all have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So what we have is a humanity that's not only sinful, and that includes you and me, but a humanity that's continually sinning with the final manifestation of death being eternity in hell. And rightfully so, it's deserved and earned. And furthermore, the issue that's connected to this, to this is that none of None of humanity, nobody in and of their own selves seeks after God. We all wander away from him. Now think on this. I want to I build the point here. Remember that God as the creator can do with his creation as he pleases. Just like I did with my mud people. And God had the right to cast everyone in hell. Because of our sin and our disobedience against him. And he would have done no wrong. But the question is, how did God remedy this problem? How did God deal with a humanity that rebelled against him and is seeking to get away from him? What he does is he leaves his throne in heaven. And he comes to awake as a child on earth. 
he becomes one of us. Now, if I had told you at the beginning when I shared my personal example of a child and making my mud people, that I had compassion on my mud people and I wanted to become like them, you would have thought I was crazy. Right? But that's exactly what God did. He lowered himself. And he came in the form of something that was inferior to himself. When we begin to grasp his preeminence, it should astound us that Jesus condescended, meaning he came down and he became one of us. But this was the way in which he would save his people. He became one of us. He lived as a human being, experiencing the full range of all the difficulties of the human experience. Now, last week, I mentioned how it's not enough simply for us to know the truth. We need to understand how this applies to our life. And so I want to begin with that again today. I want to start right here, having heard what you've just heard about Jesus becoming flesh, God coming down in the form of human being. How does this impact my life? How does knowing this impacts your life. And again, my challenge to you is, is to go home and to build on what I'm about to tell you. So follow me on this. How does this impact my life? Let me begin to build the answer here. You see, the very fact that the creator himself came down to be like his creation is astonishing because... The holy, sinless, perfect creator came to earth even when all of his creation was fallen, sinful, and disobedient towards him. And he lived among us as one of us. Now follow this. As such, our creator, Jesus Christ, understands from our perspective what it is to live in a fallen, sinful, broken world. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. And speaking of Jesus, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And all that he experienced, and all that he went through, and all the temptations that came his way, and some of them are listed for us in the scriptures. 
He knows what it's like to be human, and he knows what it's like to live in a world that is fallen and broken and sinful. He was tempted in all things as we are, except for the incredible fact that he never gave in to sin. He was without sin. We can he, sorry, he can sympathize with us. He understands what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to live life as you and I know it, even in the season that we're living in right now. Now think about that for a moment. We're just scratching the surface on this. How does this impact us? I'm just going to begin to answer that for you, and you build on this throughout the week. Think of this. When we know that someone has experienced the troubles that we've gone through and are going through, you are faced with all that comes your way. You know that someone else has experienced it all, knows exactly what you're going through. What does that do for you? Gives you a sense of comfort, right? Because there's someone who can identify with you. Even when other people can't identify fully with you, there is one who can, Jesus Christ. He can fully identify with what you're going through. And what that can do for someone who is going through such hardship, that can overflow into motivation, encouragement, and endurance, perseverance, right? Because you're not alone. There's someone else who's gone through this, right? So you're not alone. There's a sense of understanding. And strange as it is, it's what builds us up when we know we're not alone in this. And you know what, folks? This is why the fellowship of the church is so important. Think about it. You and I are not here because we got it all together. We're not here because we're better than. You know why we're here? Because we recognize the mess that we are. That's why we're here. The church isn't filled with a group of people who know how to do life better because they're smarter than the rest of the world. They recognize their sinfulness. You, you're here because you recognize your sinfulness. You're here because you recognize your weakness. You're here because you recognize you need help outside of yourself. And when we come together like this, and you look around the room, you know what we see? We don't see people that are better than us. We see people who are just as messed up as I am. And that should give us comfort. That should give us encouragement. 
And that should cause us to continue to persevere. If you really want to push this further, this is why small groups are such a great resource. When you can get together in even smaller groups and you can really build on those relationships and you can sit with a group of 10 and 15 people who are just as messed up as you are and you can really pour yourself out and they're like, I get it, I get it. And even if I don't, I can pray for you and I can walk with you. That's how Christ coming down impacts our life. Our second point, I want to look at the amazement of Christ's humility. I want to throw this verse at you, Luke 2, verse 7. We read this, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, just think about this. The creator of all things, right, who is preeminent above all, there is no one like him. There is nothing like him. He came as a human baby. He didn't come in the form of some supernatural superpower to instantly step in and rule the world. Not in his first coming. He came as a baby. And even his birth was a humble birth. He wasn't born in a hospital with the latest, greatest tech. He wasn't born under the watchful eyes of the best obstetrician. He wasn't born in a secure environment with heavy guarded security like royalty. None of those things. He was born in a stable, in a barn. And then laid to rest in a manger, a feeding trough. Think on that. The highest of all came in the lowest fashion of all. And then to add to his humiliation, he grew up in a small little hick down of two to four hundred people. That's what they're saying, what they've discovered. In a small little rural farming community. In fact, when Philip told Nathaniel in the New Testament that they had found the long-awaited for Messiah... And he then identified him, as, identified him as Jesus of Nazareth. Nathan's response in John, 4, John 1, 46, sorry, was, can anything good come from Nazareth? Now, now, he wasn't genuinely asking. These were piercing words of insult. Because Nazareth was just this tiny little farming hick town that had no significance. There was no royalty in Nazareth. There was no one there with any sort of political stout. There was nobody there of any significant wealth of any kind. It was just some small, out-of-the-way hick town with a few nobodies that offered no significance to the nation of Israel. And this is where Jesus grew up. 
in a place that was completely insignificant. And the belief was that no one of any political stout could come from there, let alone the promised Messiah. Doesn't happen. Won't work that way. But that's what makes Christ's humility so astounding. He was born in an animal stable. He was raised in an out-of-the-way, basically hidden farming town with just a few hundred people. And in spite of all of this, or in line with this, let me put it that way, instead of working his way up to the upper echelon of society so that he could rub shoulders with the big wigs, with the politicians and the, and the high priests and so forth, you know what we find Jesus doing? He hangs out and he dines with sinners. This would not have fit their idea of the coming Messiah. Now listen to this. In Matthew 9, 10, and 11, we read this. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners, and I'm going to identify that there, tax collectors and sinners came and were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, what is your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? In Luke 15, 1 and 2, we read, Now the tax collectors and sinners, there it is again, were all drawing near to hear him. And the, fear, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. See, that's a criticism and a condemnation on Jesus and the company he keeps and the people he hangs out with. In Matthew eleven nineteen, we read, the Son of Man, this is again them complaining, the Son of Man came, or Jesus, sorry, came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, in no way did Jesus meet the qualifications of a respected member of high society. Not in their day. So when we look at this, it's profound to realize that Jesus didn't hobnob with the upper tier of society. He hung out with the nobodies. He hung out with the needy. He hung out with the sinful. Now, they had identified two groups here, tax collectors and sinners. Why... Why did they just identify these two groups here? Well, tax collectors were considered traitors to the people of Israel because they were Jewish people who had volunteered to collect taxes for their Roman overlords. And there was no greater crime you could commit in Israel than to do that for the Romans. And beyond that, they would you know, add a few extra taxes on the side to line their pockets. And so they were scorned and hated. So much so that they were denied the privilege of even coming to the temple. They were denied the opportunity and the right to worship the people of God. They were disowned by society and even often by their own families. 
And we read the story of Jesus walking down the, down the street. He points out to a short fellow who's up in a tree. I imagine that someone like me climbing up a tree because he can't see Jesus. And he wants to see Jesus passing by. And Jesus points to him and says, Zacchaeus, today, hurry, come down. I must stay at your house. You see, this is lost on us because nobody would say that to Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. He was the traitor. People would sooner spit on him than talk with him. But they also accuse him of hanging out with sinners. Now, this is interesting right here. You see, the, the, the religious of Israel would never use the word prostitute openly because it was an unclean word. And so they referred to prostitutes as sinners. And so we get the idea of the type of people that Jesus is hanging out with, the traders, the tax collectors, and the prostitutes. But it didn't end there. There was more. We, we know that Jesus associated with rebels, particularly one that he actually called to be his disciple called Simon the Zealot. Now, some translations refer to him as Simon the Canaanite, but he was a zealot, and a zealot was a rebel. The belief is that Simon may have been part of a rebel group that opposed and rebelled against the Roman authorities over them. And even the Israelites didn't want to be connected with them because that would only make things worse for them. So for all intents and purposes, when, you're, when you look at the religious society in the upper tier of Israel, Jesus was hanging out with all the wrong people. Now let's bring this home. How should this truth impact our lives? Think of this. Jesus came for the needy. He came for the outcast. And he came for the sinners. Now, when you think of this, understand this. Jesus was not soft on sin. That's actually why he came as a man. Because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He came to pay the price to satisfy the wrath of God for sin. So Jesus wasn't soft on sin. But he was soft on sinners. Follow me on this. What all the people had in common that Jesus hung out with this is very clear, very clear, was that they understood that they deserved the wrath of God. Jesus wasn't soft towards those because he was soft on sin. He was soft towards those, listen, who knew they were sinners who knew they were messed up. 
He was soft on those who knew they were guilty of sinning against God. Jesus didn't come to save the righteous. He came to call the sinner to repent. Because he would lay down his life for them. He had compassion on sinners. And he came to save those. Listen, he came to save those who knew they were sinners in need of saving. So how does knowing this, how does this impact our life? We're in December. We're celebrating Christmas. We're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And knowing this part of Jesus, how does this impact our lives? Well, we can begin by saying this. It should give us hope. And it should give us a degree of joy. And it should actually draw us towards Christ and not away. You see, think of this. When I was a small child, my dad was away at work. And I would do something wrong. And I don't know if this still happens in your home, but this would happen in my home. My mother would say, wait till your father gets home. I don't know if my sister has ever heard that, but I used to hear that on a regular basis. And I'd be afraid of when my father would come home. And when he would come home, you know what I would do? I would hide. And I'd go make myself busy with anything and everything else. And I would try to be on my best behavior because I knew what was coming. You see, when you and I sin, even now, even as Christians, we're tempted to pull away from God because of our sin. Just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden, we want to hide from him. But you see, listen to this. Remember this. Jesus didn't go and hang out with those who were righteous. He didn't go and hang out with those who lived the way he thought they should. He didn't hang out with those who had it together. He went to those who were a mess. Those whose lives were falling apart because of their sinfulness. Those who carried the guilt of their sin and felt it deeply. They knew they were sinners. They knew why they were outcast. They knew why they were rejected. And they knew that in the eyes of God, they were guilty of all their sin. But what does Jesus do? Jesus shows compassion on sinners. He dines with sinners. And he calls sinners to himself. He calls them to repentance. And then he uses the weakest of them. You see, for you and me, our guilt, even now, will entice us to actually pull away from Christ. Right? Right? That's what happens in our own lives. 
when we do wrong, we want to pull away from Christ. Can I just encourage you this morning? Look in the scriptures and look what Jesus did. Look who Jesus hung out with. He knows your sinfulness. He knows how messed up you are. And in all his sinless perfection, in all his holiness, he doesn't turn his back on you and walk away. He comes to you. And he says, today I need to come to your house. Today I need to come to your house. Are you listening? Jesus knows how messed up you are. He knew every one of your sins that you have committed, and he knew you would commit them before you committed them, and he knows every sin you're going to commit. And if I can just encourage you with one thing, you know how messed up you are. Listen to the words of Jesus. Today I need to come to your house. Don't run away from Jesus. He came to save sinners. He dined with sinners. He knows what you're like. Brothers and sisters, December is a month where we proclaim the good news of the coming of Jesus Christ. Why is it good news? Because it's good news for messed up people like us. And just like the angel said to the shepherds, to fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. Hey, that's you and me for all people. Good news of great joy for all people. Not just the righteous, but for sinners, for those who are messed up. So this morning, I want to encourage you. Don't let the guilt of your sin keep you away from Jesus. He came to seek sinners and to bring them to repentance. He's calling on you today. If you've never come to Christ, he's calling on you. Come to him. Come to him. Jesus is the good news of great joy to sinners like you and me. So don't let your guilt and fear rule your life. Come to Jesus. Cling to the joy of the great news of a creator who became man and dwelt with sinners. Are you with me? Father, this morning, we recognize we're here not because we're better than, not because we have it together, but because 2,000 years ago, Jesus came so that he might have compassion on sinful people like the ones in this room today. All of us, Lord. And we're here not because we've got it together, but because you were merciful to us. 
and you've come and you're dwelling with us. This very morning, you are in this place. You are here. You are with us. Lord, we read in John chapter 6 that all, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me. And then Jesus says, and anyone who comes to me, I will no wise cast out. Jesus said that I have come to seek sinners and bring them to repentance. That's us, Lord. That's us here this morning. I pray we would have comfort in that. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in understanding why 2,000 years ago Jesus became man. I pray that we would rejoice when we begin to understand who Jesus came for were sinners like us. If there's anybody in here today who has never come to faith in Jesus, but you hear Christ knocking this morning, you hear him speaking to you, saying, come to me. We'd love to pray with you this morning and come up after the service or right where you're at, just pray. If you call on him, he will never cast you out. If your sin has kept you from Jesus, you've been hiding your sin, you've been staying away from God because you're just so messed up, don't stay away. Jesus came for you. He's coming to dine with you. This is just the beginning of how knowing why Christ came impacts our lives. So Lord, I just pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would work in all of us, in our hearts, within our lives. Draw us to yourself. Build us up in Jesus Christ. Do not allow our sin and our fears to keep us away from you, Lord, but raise us up to find great joy in Jesus Christ. We'd love to pray with anyone after the service if you'd like to come up and you need prayer please come up we'd like to pray with you we pray all of this in jesus name amen